Cornus Wagner was a baseball player around the turn of last century. He was bow-legged, and he was not a physical specimen to be commended, and so he was criticized by sports writers and written off by many. But he became one of the most prolific hitters, possibly one of the greatest shortstops to ever play the game. Uh, He retired in 1917 with a slew of records. Uh, Hornus Wagner had this quote. He said, being a ball player isn't isn't a big isn't much to do or much to know if you're a ball player. There isn't much to knowing how to be a ball player if you're a ball player. If it's in you, it's natural. Uh, at the risk of sounding oversimplistic, there's not a lot to being a Christian if you really are one. Now it's a matter of growth and learning and knowing. But if the core of the life of Christ is within a person, as they grow in grace, it's who we are. Christianity is not something we do. It's who we are. And at the risk of overworking an illustration I've used for years and years, uh, Toshiko Bowers, uh, I would tell her to try to be Japanese, and she would always look back at me and she said, I don't have to try to be Japanese. I am Japanese. We don't try to be Christians because that's who we are. The Beatitudes from start to finish are not something that we do. It's the character of who we are when Christ is having his way and living his life in and through us. We are the poor in spirit. We are the merciful. We are all those things. And because we are those things, it's a perfect revelation to this world that we are not from this world, that we are from a different kingdom and a different place, if you will. In fact, if you look down to chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, all the way down to verse 10, you see the reaction that the world has toward we as believers. They don't get us. And because they don't get us, And because we're so different from them in in, in the core and essence of who we are and the way that we live our lives, they hate us. Not all of them, but by and large. And look at the result in chapter 5, verse 10. This is the last, the eighth blessing, and it's really a double blessing from from verse 10 to 11. Notice he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Notice, for righteousness' sake. Be very careful with that term. There are things that happen in our lives, and it has nothing to do with being persecuted for the faith. It has to do with just living a life in this world. You know, every aching bone and every difficult person we have to deal with isn't a direct persecution. It's just because people are different and, and, and difficult at times. But there are times because we're Christians, we get treated in such a way that is contrary and wrong and taken advantage. Some of you on your works, uh, where you work, or or maybe within your family are looked down upon because of your faith. You're looked at as stupid or or slow or just superstitious or, or just different. And he says to those, blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. We are from an altogether different source from them. They are the kingdom of this world. We are from the kingdom of heaven. We should not expect it any other way. I'm, I, actually, I'm quite comfortable with persecution. I mean, I don't want to be locked in stocks and, and, and tormented. But when the world goes against us, it's a good sign. It's a sign that we're carrying the message of our Savior, who they crucified. Verse 10. Blessed are you. Notice it changes from those to a personal persecution. As a whole, the church has been persecuted for thousands of years. Sometimes it was the church persecuting the church. Uh, you may not know this, but back before the, the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church persecuted the church of true believers. Some of the most heralding stories of martyrdom was done at the hands of religious men who called us, I'm going to tell you, every one of us would be heretics if we lived back then to that denomination. We would. You'd be a heretic. Notice verse 10, or 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Make sure you add that word falsely. Sometimes we, we are guilty of, this, of, of, of the talk. But when we're not, when we're living Christ, if we make the moral decisions in our workplace, I had a brother come to me years ago, they wanted him to cheat on the numbers. He counted this and counted that where he worked, and they were fudging the numbers, and he found out, and he went to them, and he said, I'm not lying for you anymore. They have hated and persecuted him ever since. We stand for righteousness, and that is always going to get flack in your face. Verse 12, notice the reaction. Rejoice. <laughs> you know, to be happy and rejoice when you're persecuted, it's one of two things. Either you're insane or you know something they don't know. Either you're nuts, you're crazy, or you have a secret that they don't know. I'm going to take B. Rejoice and be glad. Here's the B answer. For your reward is great in heaven. Because this is nothing new. You have joined some very elite crowds. Look at the rest of the verse. For so persecuted the prophets that were before you. Isn't that an honor? It's an honor to be in that crowd. It's an honor to be counted with the prophets that were slain, that were dogged and chased down and hated and ridiculed and talked against. Hallelujah. Glory. This world is not the end. This world is not all there is. We're going to a distant kingdom, and, and we are against the flow. We are absolutely in the stream going upstream against a downstream flow. And if you don't expect, if you have no resistance in this world, you're probably walking the wrong way in the stream. As we walk toward that kingdom, there is resistance against us. And hallelujah when it comes. Rejoice. And I don't look forward to the day they march in here and arrest me right now. Out they go. 
But in that paddy wagon on the way down to joy, I'd be praising God to stand faithful to Christ, faithful to the message, faithful as a Christian where you work, where you go to school, verbal about it, happy about it, joyful about it, unashamed of him, unashamed of our Savior. There's nothing more shameful than what they did to him on the cross, stripping him naked, beating him, nailing him to a cross. The Jews in the Old Testament, there's a verse that said, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That's why the Jews can't accept Jesus Christ because they count him as cursed. He was cursed, but he took my curse and your curse. He suffered that shame, and we are to do that in this world, proclaiming Christ unashamed. Unashamed. Bob Chrisman was an old friend who I met two days ago at the game. Bob Chrisman is a, is a mess. A couple years ago, his son, who was a star athlete in, 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 in school, ran into some hard times. Bob lost his wife a year ago. Bob doesn't know Christ as his Savior. When he, and I knew he, he may have come to the game, may not. And they didn't know if he'd show up because he just doesn't get out of the house anymore. I turned around. There was Bob. He hugged me for three solid minutes. I thought a bear had gotten a hold of me. And as he backed up, tears were streaming down his eyes. He said this. He said, if anybody can help me, Mike, you can help me. And as I shared the gospel, and I'm talking to him, and, and you got to see the scene. There's a football game going on there, spectators all over. There's a tent. There's rain coming down. There's everybody milling it out. And I'm sharing the gospel with Bob right there. Because it's the only thing that will help my friend is Christ. I talked to him about receiving Christ. He said, i got to do that every day. got to do that. I said, you do that one time, Bob. That's it. We proclaim Christ with eyes open because it's the only hope of the world around us. You know, the lost man has his, his life pretty much in hand until God, until God sweeps away things in his life. And he's like a ship out on the sea. I told Bob, I said, look, God sometimes does these things to open our hearts. He said, Mike, it tears flowing down his eyes. He said, Mike, my heart is open. My heart is open. My heart is open. Pray for him that he gets saved. We're going to talk. Unashamed, notice verse 13. He goes on with the you are's, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. Notice the earth. In a few minutes, he's going to say, you are the light of the world, different word, of the cosmos. But here he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, the main purpose for salt back at this time was to delay corrosiveness so things wouldn't rot out. It delays corruption. It holds it back, if you will. If there's something corrupt and it's packed in salt, like meat, it'll hold it for a long time. It doesn't doesn't make anything pure. It simply retards the process of corruption. Now, this is about our influence in this world. This is what we are. We are the force and the influence in this world that holds the corruption of this world back. On a local basis, in your workplace, at your school, you are the person who shows up and they stop talking a certain way. 
You are the person that shows up and they begin to think about God when they weren't thinking about him at all. Now, that doesn't get them saved, and that doesn't make them pure, but it opens up the possibility that they're open to the gospel. We are the salt. We are that which holds. I'm going to tell you, when we are raptured out of here pretty soon, when we're taken out of this world, this, you think this world is bad right now. We're the only thing that's holding this world from going into absolute chaos. When we're gone, the 10 o'clock news will come on and thousands of people will be killed every night, not just one or two. We are what's holding, the Holy Spirit in this world is what's, through our lives, is holding evil back. We We are the force that keeps this world at least, when it talks about earth, we are the salt of the earth. That's the material things. That's people. That's us. That's this life right now. And we are that which holds. This is not the sharing of the gospel. This is the salt that gives the gospel an opportunity for a hearing. Of, those, of the fellows that I saw two days ago, none of them knew the Lord. Maybe one, none of them. We are to go into that situation as a believer. And maybe they went home and picked up their Bible. That's the influence that we should have. By the way, my good friend Jim invited me to a bar afterward, just like I expected. I said, Jim, Jim's a great, I love Jim. I said, Jim, you know, probably, you know, it's just kind of, whatever. And uh, I wanted to spend time with him, but not in that setting. I'm not going to do that because that that would corrode my influence over him. You sit there drinking with a guy and you tell him you're a Christian. You're no different than I am. So we went to Caleb and I went to a restaurant. And guess who walked in? My friend Jim. Had his wife with him. Another guy had his wife. And we got to share that time together talking old memories. And by the way, I'm glad you all weren't there to listen to my old memories. In fact, I'm glad that Caleb wandered off, that he didn't hear some of the, the locker room stories. I can't believe I did that stuff in the locker room. It just, I just I can't believe that stuff went on. Must have been a different guy back then. <laughs> but we got to share that time together. And I had influence in the gospel with him at a restaurant, not a bar. Okay? So let's go on. Look at it. Notice. Warning. But if salt has lost its taste, now this has nothing to do with our salvation. It has everything to do with our influence in this world. If we claim Christ and we live just like they do, we have lost the taste, the punches. Literally, it's the word tang, the tang. Not the orange drink that went in outer space, but that that feeling of, you ever biting into something, you're like, whoa, what's in that? That flavor that grabs you. Man, somebody put some cinnamon in this French toast. We are the salt. We are the flavor. We are that which fights back corruption. But if that salt has lost any tanginess, any bite to it, notice what he says. How shall it be restored? How shall that influence be brought back? I think the implication for those people that might have been influenced by us is it's not. 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And that's what they do to the testimony of the gospel when our influence isn't what it ought to be as believers and our life is not godly in their presence. Now, we're not perfect, okay? We don't have to walk around with a a collar. A couple of them said a few times, I said, Gaylor, go get your collar. I said, I don't wear a collar. I don't... We don't walk around with outward, but we walk around communicating the Christ that's in us. Influence. Verse 14. By the way, it doesn't tell us to give them salt. It says we are the salt. It's who we are when we're walking with Christ that is the character that they see. I used to really try to be a good godly Christian in front of the lost. I don't try anymore. I'm just, we're just faithful to him. Eyes on him. And they see it. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. You are the light. Now, I have taught in years past, and and I don't see it as a bad illustration, that we are a reflection of Christ, like the sun is to the moon. I'm ready to move away from that illustration a hair. Because this doesn't say that we are a reflection of Christ. It says we are the light of the world. I think a better illustration is that his life is in us shining forth. It isn't that we're reflecting him from a distance as we look to him, you know, just you just reflect. It's he came inside and he like like imagine yourself as Swiss cheese. With a thousand or a strainer. Your whole body is a strainer and somebody puts a light inside. Just reflecting out. That's what our lives are. It's not something we try to be the light. You know, I'm going to turn this light on. We are the light. You are the light. Well, you know, if I read my Bible, I'll be the light. You are the light. If I come to church, right? you are the light. Well, i got to be faithful and witness. You are the light. Notice a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. His first illustration is about a city, which is a collection of people who have chosen to live in a particular area. We are, as the body of Christ, to reflect him corporately, all together. We are that city on the hill. Not that the building. The church is. We are together, knit together by faith. Knit together because God has brought you to this place. Knit together because we need each other. Knit together because we grow better when we're together. We grow closer to Christ because I see things in you that I need to see. You see things in me that you need to see. And by our interaction and our friendship and our fellowship and what we share of our faith one with another, we are growing in a city. We are a city on a hill. We are a church with a testimony. And may that testimony be godly. Not all churches have godly testimonies. 
There was a church on the north side years ago that had a business meeting, and they had to call police, and they surrounded the whole building. Because they broke into a big fight. Happened years ago right here in this town. There have been things that go on in churches, immoral things that are covered up, testimony. The sin, that city's salt is gone. That light is the influence of that, the testimony in the community. But churches ought to have corporate testimonies of godliness. City on a hill cannot be hidden. By the way, you know we're not in the valley. You know, this, this body of faith doesn't live hidden. God places us in high profile to everyone who passes by. Did you know that? Did you know they're looking at Suncoast? They're looking at our church. They're looking at churches a lot more than you think they're looking at. As they pass through life, they see that city up there. City on a hill. God put us on a hill. He didn't bury us in a valley. Some churches behave like they live in a valley. You know, surround themselves with walls and hang on till Jesus comes. Man, we are, we are to be on a hill, on display. Notice what the next verse says. Nor do people lamp, light a lamp. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Now, this is in a home. This is not a corporate city. This is an individual home where individual people live. See the difference of illustration that he gives? You light a light in your home. You don't put a basket over top of it. I mean, one of two things are going to go out, going to happen. Either the light goes out or the basket will catch fire. If it's a real light, it might just catch fire. Notice. Nor do people light a candle and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand, and it gives light to all, notice, to all that are in the house. I mean, I could ask for testimony time right now. Those of you who've gotten saved and your husband got saved, your wife got saved, your kids got saved, the family influence after I got saved, my sister got saved. My brother-in-law got saved. My nephews got saved. My dad got saved. My mom got saved. And that's the work of the gospel of influence within a family. Something's up with Mike. He just comes home and he just didn't want you. See? See, you have powerful influence within your family. So much so that the book of Acts said, when Paul said, the Philippian jailer, what do you say about you shall be saved in all your... It doesn't mean all everybody in the house will be saved, but the power of the gospel is so powerful now within your family and home. Don't give up on your family members. Verse 16, we'll end there. In the same way, in the same way that a city is on the side of a hill and people see it all the time, in the same way that you take that light and you put it on a stand because you want light... Oh, and by the way, before we get to the last verse, you know the purpose for light. It dispels darkness. And the light doesn't take time to do that. You have a dark room and you turn the lights on. He's like, hold on for 20 minutes. We'll get, we'll get rid of this darkness somehow. <laughs> oh, there's a corner right there. Wait, wait, there's a corner. The darkness isn't gone yet. When you hit that light, everything comes on. And everybody can see clearly. 
And there's no light, there's no darkness when the light is on. Our lives are light for all the darkness around us. When you go into that workplace and you go into that school and you go to that store, you are light all the way around you. Be godly, be friendly, be loving, be smiling, be sharing God's love. Wherever you go, you will will confuse people. Just a simple smile can be sharing the love of Christ wherever you go. Dispelling darkness, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Let it shine. (laughs) Notice it doesn't say light it. Notice it doesn't say flip the switch. Allow what's already in you to come out. Don't hold it back before others so that they may see, notice, your good works. Because that's all they can see. At this point, you're not sharing the gospel. You're just simply opening the possibility that they might hear and understand and believe. They see something different in your life. Notice and give glory to your Father because they recognize that your Father is in heaven. And only the Father can change lives. You you know, this, this salt and light is not us making anything pure and not changing anything. Only God can do that. But God uses the godly influence of our lives as we walk with Christ and that light is allowed to shine out through us to influence powerfully people in order to come to Jesus Christ. Again, none of these beatitudes are anything we do. It's a realization of what's in us and a focus on that. Hornus Wagner said, there's not much to being a ball player if you're a ball player. There's not much to being a Christian if you really are one. Do you know him today as your Savior? Do you know Christ? Only he can make this influence and powerful effect in and through your lives. Just got to take your hands off.